you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers, who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent, and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labour who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall 
and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Good morning, City on a Hill. It's great to see you. My name is Michael Theophilus. Uh, during the week, I work as a university lecturer in biblical studies and ancient languages. And I have the distinct privilege and pleasure this morning to open up Nehemiah chapter 5 and to unpack it with you. Uh, the chapter itself uh, is sort of fairly long and intersects at different points, but I, I, I want to uh, sort of in particular unpa- unpack the first half of it because there is untold uh, wealth of wisdom in there. As we do that, don't forget that we here and now, you sitting in your seat in this room, here and now, are part of a living tradition, a living tradition that has existed from the start. Uh, We have, I have behind me here, a papyrus manuscript from the second century, and it's the earliest Christian hymn that we have that actually exists in, you know, the original. Uh, It's called Papyrus Octorinxus 1786. It's written in Greek, and we even know what it sounds like because there's little musical notation in between the, the lines. If you learnt Greek when you were doing your maths, maybe, but in between you can see some uh, squeals and dots. We even know what this thing sounds like. And I'm going to start our time together prayerfully reading this Christian song from the second century. There were some requests for me to sing it in Greek. That will not happen, I guarantee you. Maybe someone else here could. Uh, So as we begin, I want to commit our time to the Lord, and I'm going to use the words of this papyrus manuscript from 1,800 years ago, uh, the words that were sung in Christian gatherings, just like this, but in a different part of the world, in a very different century. Let it be silent. Let the luminous stars not shine. Let the winds and all the noisy rivers die down as we hymn the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let all the powers add amen, amen, praise, empire, praise, and glory to God, the sole giver of good things. Amen. Like I said, Christians have been meeting just like we are today for thousands of years lifting their voices in worship, lifting their hands in prayer and opening their hearts to the reality of God's word and the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. I like to think of scripture as being simple enough for a toddler or a a baby to understand and yet so profound that the greatest minds in history are being unable to exhaust the profundity and the depth of the scriptures. 
Many people have wrestled with the scriptures over many generations and have still not exhausted the, the full depth. When I was a student in England doing my PhD, I read 100,000 words on three words from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the second word was of, so that was a pretty, <laughs> pretty chilled year that, that year. At the end of that, I still felt like I was literally just scratching the surface of the scripture. I mean, you, you, you dig and you keep digging and you keep digging. In fact, Gregory the Great has this fantastic little uh, discussion where he describes scripture as a river, both shallow and deep, in which a lamb may, may walk and an elephant may swim. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. And as you do, let me recap the Ezra-Nehemiah storyline so we can understand the passage in its context, which is actually really important, understanding words in context have a significant impact on how we understand them. Have you ever been taken out of context with something you've said? Have you taken someone else that someone said is out of context? I have. I remember when I did my very first um, marathon in Canada, uh, there was a little registration booth, an orientation session the night before. We have to go in, you sign in and do whatever. And there's some information there uh, that uh, they gave us about the drinks that will be available uh, during the run and the other sort of, you know, what time to set to turn up and all that stuff. I say for about five or six minutes, I heard that drinks were available and that uh, there'd be a banana and some orange juice or something at the end. I thought, great, that sounds good. Off to do my carb loading with a bunch of friends. And we did that, got an early night, got up early ran the, way, the, uh, the, the thing and it was, it was fun and, and, and fine. However, uh, when I got to the drink station, I, uh, I picked up a drink and it was really cool the way they did. They actually uh, had drinks um, in these big sponges and you sort of just squeeze it in, which was great because if you've ever tried to run with a cup, you try that, uh, it sort of goes all over the place. Um, however, the little uh, twist to this is that uh, in the presentation that I left early for and therefore was taking the words outside of their context, uh, the instructions were that the drinks actually were going to be provided in cups. Uh, and the sponges, in fact, were for absorbing the perspiration off your body. <laughs> and so I had, it makes me sort of something funny taste in my mouth when I see sponges now. But I had literally picked up a sponge filled with some other person's sweat and squeezed every last drop in thinking I was rehydrating. And I, actually, as I was doing it, I was thinking, hmm, this Gatorade tastes a bit sort of tangy. I thought the, the electrolytes that are going into my body must be so good for me. So I'm running along. Great. Turns out that you should understand words in context. There will be drinks. And there will be drinks in cups makes a big difference. <laughs> Understanding words in context. So when we read the Bible, we read the Bible as a text in its context. And that's how you should read the Bible. Um, the way you can do that is you can listen to the Bible on audio. If you've got an audio Bible, go for a walk or a run in the car, whatever it is. Uh, you can be intentional about reading the Bible, sitting down saying, right, I'm going to read the book of Ezra. It's going to take about 43 minutes. Or Nehemiah, taking about 58 minutes. Or, in fact, you could just come to church because that's what we do here. We read, we study, we pray, and then we apply entire books of the Bible. As was just mentioned, we're in week, week 10 of 14 of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Anyway, to give you a broad brush uh, understanding of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the first half of Ezra 
the people return from Babylon and they build the temple with Zerubbabel. The second half of Ezra is there's a second wave of people that return and then they establish the Torah and the community. So things are progressing and moving along. In the first half of Nehemiah, or Nehemiah 1 to 7, we have the third wave coming and then now they're rebuilding the city, including the wall, which we're right in the middle of that. So chapter 5 is this little interlude. The wall is started in chapter 4. You get then chapter 5 and then finished in chapter 6. So in chapter 5, the wall is not completed. It's a snapshot of what's happening in Jerusalem life in the interim period between uh, 4 and 6, which is the building of the wall. So have a look at uh, Nehemiah 5.1. Sets the scene. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So just when everything seemed to be humming along nicely, everyone's working on the wall, they're defending themselves, they're you know, continuing to, to, to progress well, disaster strikes. There is an outcry. Interestingly, the word that is used, because the Old Testament, most of it is written in Hebrew, there's 269 verses in Aramaic, but this, this part here is in Hebrew. There's a Hebrew word, se'akah, that's used for the outcry. It even sounds like an outcry when you say it, se'akah. That indicates intense distress, and that word, se'akah, is only used in a handful of Bible uh, references and passages in the whole Old Testament. Typically, it's used for distress under foreign control. So it's used in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, Israel's response to Egyptian slavery. Or it's used in 1 Samuel 9, 16, referring to Philistine oppression. And it's used in Jeremiah as a response to the Babylonian exile. So in Nehemiah 5, the walls of the city have not even been completed. Remember, that happens in chapter 6. And the Israelites are crying out in, with the same voice or the same word as when they were in exile or in slavery in Egypt. Do you see what's happening? <laughs> they've just returned from exile and they've put themselves now back in exile. They're speaking the same words as being in exile. Se'akah, the same word. And ironically, the twist in this passage is it's not a foreign nation that has taken them off into exile, who is subjecting the nation to exile? Themselves. They're doing it themselves. Our brothers. The Jewish brothers. And those people, the, the nation itself is portrayed as the taskmaster, the oppressor, or the Babylonian overlord, or whatever it might be. They put themselves back. And what's, what makes matters even worse, and this is completely and utterly tragic, is this has in fact happened before. Have a look at Isaiah chapter uh, 5, verse 7. Isaiah, remember, gives the reasons for why the people went, or this part of Isaiah at least, the reasons for which the people went into exile. Isaiah 5, 7, God looks among his people for justice, but finds bloodshed, for righteousness, but finds outcries. And to highlight this in Isaiah, there's a word play, assonance and consonance, the, um, the, the matching vowel sounds and matching consonant sounds. God looks for righteousness, tzedakah in Hebrew, but finds tzedakah, 
Tzedakah, Tzedakah, Tzedakah, Tzedakah. A little wordplay. They sound alike, but they have completely opposite meanings. Come back to Nehemiah. Can you feel the weight of his opening verse? Opening words? He doesn't hold back. Israel is her worst enemy. The captivity for Israel has been imposed on the nation by their own people. Israel has not learnt from her mistakes. We've finally been delivered from Babylonian exile. The temple's rebuilt. The walls are going up. We're back on track. And we're back in exile. But even worse, it's at the hands of the corrupt, self-serving Israelite leaders acting just like the nations that exiled them. So the first thing I think we can take away from this half a word or even one one word, learn from past mistakes. Don't take God's voice or revelation for granted. Don't ignore the lessons that God teaches us along the way. Don't subject yourself to exile again just after you've been released from it. Don't go back. Journal, pray, read, gather, absorb, dig, go to GC, whatever it takes to keep on top of not going back into exile. So really the core message of Nehemiah is not some handbook or principle strategy document for administrative governance or a planner for establishing some great big wing of the new building program. It's nothing to do with that. It speaks to the deeper reality of the fickleness of the human heart to want to go back and to subject others back to exile. The depravity, the weakness, the inclination of our desires to abandon God and to then begin to exploit other human beings. I think that's pretty sort of heavy. I don't want to start off all heavy, but Nehemiah is saying, look, the people are really struggling with this. We make it about something else. The great revival strategies, however expansive, however impressive, the great leaders, however gifted or well-intentioned, the great associate professors, respective of their proficiency in Greek, Hebrew, Coptic, Latin, whatever language you can dream of, they cannot ultimately redeem and transform your life. Sorry, they can't do that. That's God's job. It's God's job. You can try, but you'll be disappointed. God's solution, however, to all this is planted right there at the very start of Ezra and Nehemiah. Have a look at Ezra 1.1. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book in uh, the traditional canon. It's been split into two for us, but it's one book. Ezra 1.1, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So this whole thing is happening for something about Jeremiah. So what, what on earth is that about? Well, that's Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29.10 says, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, fulfill my promise, and bring you back to this land. Oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Ezra is about the return from Babylon to this place. But it's not only a geographical return. It initiates something that's way bigger. And it's linked to Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my, my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will remember their sin no more. 
a new covenant where truth is on the heart. And this language can confuse us because for us, the heart is where I feel something, right? I love you with all my heart. I mean, I love you with all my heart. The head is for thinking, the heart is for feeling, in our view. However, in the Hebrew worldview, in the ancient worldview, the heart is where you do your thinking. That is the centre of your person. Just like in Genesis 6, 5, when it says, the thoughts of their hearts. Your heart actually thinks. The emotions, for a Hebrew context, uh, is in your guts, your intestines. So next Valentine's Day, dear, darling, sweetheart, I love you with all my intestines. But you might need to give them some ancient Near Eastern contextual information. Contact me for that if you like. We might, well, actually, in the modern context, we say gut feeling, don't we? I have a gut feeling that this is just going to be a great day. Well, normally it's more negative. Anyway, we, we get that. And that sort of idea is in Lamentations as well, if you want to look at biblical uh, references. Anyway, the point is that God has designed a plan to enable forgiveness, not only from individual sins, but the transformation of our hearts. So that our motivations and our thoughts are set right. This new covenant has been initiated with Jesus' words, you remember, at the Last Supper. Luke 22, the cup that's poured is a new covenant. It's echoed in 1 Corinthians 11. And then it's expanded in 2 Corinthians 3. It talks about the old covenant which is only taken away through Christ. The book of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, exactly this section here, in full, twice. Chapter 8 and chapter 10. It relates to Jesus' atoning death on the cross. So what we see in the passage is a problem with a seed of the solution that came at the very first verse of the book. Part and parcel with that, you have not just a new covenant, like a new set of rules or a new this or a new that, but you've got a promise which Ezekiel brings in to the Jeremiah stuff, the prophetic hope for the future. Ezekiel 36 talks about not just a new covenant, not just a new sort of set of rules, but a new heart. And in verse 27 of Ezekiel 36, God's Spirit helping us live that out. Why? Well, to enable forgiveness. Bring into, I'll bring you into your land, I'll give you a new heart, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Second point we can take away from this is that God offers us a new heart and a new mind. All we have to do is to open ourselves, allow God to give us that new heart and mind through the power of the Holy Spirit to live faithfully. You might remember in 2 Corinthians, it talks about being a new creation. That's what it's talking about. Anyway, let's go to verse 2. Do you remember about swimming like elephants? How elephants swim? Verse 2. You might say, wow, come on, was it really that bad in Jeremiah's day? Well, in verses 2 to 4, there's three groups that are identified who are all suffering crippling economic exploitation. And the hardships are to do with the famine in verse 3, but also because everyone's building the wall, right? They've left their job doing whatever, they're building the wall. A couple of months' worth of work. And the effect of that was different in each group. The first group were those who don't have any land and they're dependent on the weekly paycheck. 
and they're very seriously affected by that. Verse 5 indicates that they were so seriously affected that to exist, they had to sell their children into slavery to keep alive. This was a sad reality of the ancient world. In fact, uh, this image here is a heartbreaking imprint of a one-year-old's child foot in a clay tablet with cuneiform script, that's the type of writing, inscription. It's a legal record of an indebted couple selling their child into slavery. It's a vivid reminder of this tragic plight. Cute little baby toes that make these nice little imprints into clay should be used for this little piggy went to market. It should not be used for ratification of a legal contract for the child's being sold into slavery. I mean, heartbreaking stuff. You might say, well, that's terrible for those guys and that's terrible and, oh, this, that. But we don't do that today, do we? No, of course not. Sex tourism in Asia, child soldiers in, uh, in wars in Syria and elsewhere, human organ trafficking, assault weapons in the US, the child obesity endemic, I learned recently that one person every six seconds dies from starvation or malnutrition, and most of those are children. So that means that during our church service this morning, 1,000 people, most of which are children, will die of starvation and malnutrition. That just boggles your mind. And how can I even continue? How can I process that? I can't. 260 million child labourers in the fashion supply chain. Check your label, folks. Where's it made? Whose hands did it come through? This stuff is really challenging for us. We might think, no, that we're not like them. Those silly old Israelites at their things again. Oh, here they go, put themselves back into exile. We're exactly like them. At least I am. Maybe not you. We are the ones that are extracting the tzakah, the cry of distress. From people, God wants tzedakah, righteousness, and he gets cries of distress. Verse 3, there are also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. The second group seem to be landowners, uh, and, and even them, uh, they are facing financial hardship. They don't have enough money for food or enough money to repay the loans. And don't think about this, you know, 0.5, 0.25 increase in your home loan and then all the stress that's causing you. The Persian taxes were astronomically high. I could spend a couple of hours looking at these ancient texts that talk about Persian taxes. At some points, these taxes were 60 plus percent. Imagine having a loan of 60 percent repayment. So going to be crippling, and they were crippled. And in verse 4, there's a third group. We have borrowed money for the king's tax. It's so severe that you can't pay your taxes, so you're borrowing money just to pay your tax. Persian taxes were renowned for being heavy, and the situation was not rectified. They're going to end up right with that first group in verse 2 where they're selling themselves to slavery. Verse 5, we are forced. We are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. It's not in our power to help it. The sad reality is that not only sons and daughters being sold into slavery, indicated by 
a very normal and standard word in Hebrew, eved, for a slave, but that some daughters were enslaved, which uses a completely different, I don't think I'm giving you the Hebrew, but anyway. It's a different word for slavery and, and being enslaved. It's kavash, uh, which really carries sexual overtones. Tragically, implying payment in non-monetary terms, paying your debts with the bodies of your daughters. Wow. The situation is desperate. Things have degenerated very quickly in this post-exilic community. Nehemiah's response, he's angry. And he puts forward legal challenges to the perpetrators. I was very angry when I heard their outcry. And these words, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And his point is, you've just been redeemed. You've just been redeemed from being owned by a foreign land and you're selling your brothers and sisters back into that? What is going on here? You're sending them right back. Their response, verse 8, not surprisingly, they're silent. Couldn't find a word to say. And then in verse 9, he evokes a key Old Testament phrase encouraging compliance to the challenge to the leaders, ought you not walk in the fear of our God? He gives the nobles and the leaders, the authorities, a reality check. Reminding them who they're actually dealing with here. This isn't some just kind of joke. Behind this story stands God as the one who is orchestrating his plan of redemption. And you're working against God by doing this stuff. Nobles are sending the people back into exile before the paint has even dried on the wall that they're constructing. A couple of decades ago, I lived in Papua New Guinea for a year. Uh, and uh, during that time there, I was doing some uh, volunteer work, some teaching and other bits and pieces. And I used to get invited out to the uh, neighboring villages if one of my students were, invited me or something like that. And one time off the south east coast, I was going off to a village, a small little island, in a little aluminium dinghy about 12 foot or so long. It was packed full of coconuts and other things. And just in the middle of that section um, of uh, going across the body of water, uh, the motor just cut out. And uh, right at that uh, moment, I sort of was like, hang on a minute, this isn't supposed to happen. Let's keep going, folks. Let's don't stop halfway. Uh, there was a guy there. Uh, he was a captain of this small little uh, sailing vessel. And uh, he, he had an oar. It was like a little wooden oar. And he was screaming at the, at the top of his lungs, uh, you like Dennis one time in me, which is pidgin English for would you like to dance with me? And he was looking down into the water somewhere. And I was thinking to myself, you know, to be honest, whatever you're looking at down there, um, I don't want you to be dancing with anyone at this point. I just want you to be driving the boat or whatever you do with the boat, piloting the boat. And as I was sort of looking around thinking, when's this, when, when's this going to end? He's whacking the water with the, with the oar and, and yelling out. I thought to myself, okay, uh, this, uh, this could get uh, a little bit uh, sort of... I was thinking the worst, actually. I was thinking, we're going to capsize. Uh, the coconuts falling out of the boat as the thing's going all over the place. Uh, some guy's hat, you know, floating past, whatever. It, it, I, I was thinking the worst. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw this great big grey kind of shadowy mass come past the boat. It was literally the largest stingray that I've ever seen, well, not that I've ever seen, that's ever existed on planet Earth. 
It looked like it was about six metres wide. I know they don't grow quite that big, but it was huge. And uh, I thought we were going to capsize. I thought I was going to be impaled through the eye with a stinger, uh, and it was all going to be over. Um, Fortunately, I stand before you today having lived through such a traumatic event. Uh, But to tell you the truth, I was afraid. I I was scared. Uncontrollable environment. The vastness of the water. The shiver of sharks that we had passed 10 minutes earlier. Uh, It was terrifying, the terrifying creatures that live in those waters. Fear, genuine fear, fear for your own safety. That's what Nehemiah 5.9 is referring to when he says, ought you not walk in the fear of the Lord? Now, some people try and convince you that fear actually means respect. Got to respect God. Yes, sir. No, no, sir. Yir'ah in Hebrew does not mean fear, uh, does not mean respect. There's a perfectly good word for that in Hebrew, chashav. That's respect. Go and have a look at Malachi 3. Sure, fear implies respect. It's not what it means. Respect is too weak. It's genuine fear. Fear for your personal safety. When God reveals his glory, even a tiny little bit of it in the Old Testament, what do people do? They're told to fear not. And the reason for that is because they're fearful. Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Hagar, a whole bunch of people, the whole lot of them, they drop and they're they're utterly overwhelmed, which sort of makes sense. You're confronted with reality itself, the God of the universe. I mean, we can't even look at the sunshine without burning our eyes from 150 million kilometres away. And you don't think standing before God, full, raw, powerful glory, wouldn't be just slightly concerning for us? Even the majestic seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 have to shield their eyes. Oh, that's much better. I can see you now. Oh, people here. Even the seraphim have to shield their eyes when they're before God in his glory in, in Isaiah 6. Of course, God can make himself accessible to us. Of course he can. But in God's raw, unfettered, infinite glory, he's completely overwhelming. In C.S. Lewis, Lewis's classic, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy, the youngest girl in the story, who's my favourite character, is surprised to learn that Aslan is not a man, but a lion. And she asks, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Bieber. Mr. Bieber. Mr. Bieber, even. Don't you hear what Mrs. Bieber tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And in fact, the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us, in Proverbs 9.10, is the very beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is a healthy dose of emotional fear in the face of God's reality. But it's also conjoined with love and hope. It's not, just hear me clearly, it's not a slavish dread, not a fearful hope, but a hopeful fear. That is a hope-filled fear of our place in God's world and our responsibility to God. And Nehemiah is reminding these people, of exactly that. 
So the third point we can take from this is we should develop a hope-filled or a hopeful fear, a sensitivity to our place in God's world. Not a slavish dread or a fear-filled hope, but a hope-filled fear of what that means to operate in God's world. world. The next verse, the, the, uh, the nobles agree. Verse 12, we'll do as you say. But as you can probably understand, Nehemiah's a little bit suspicious. I know what you're up to. I know that you're fickle. I know you're going to flip-flop on that decision. So he ensures that they're brought publicly and they make a legal commitment to reinstating property, possessions, cancelling loans, returning the uh, additional interest that has been seized. And then in verse 12b, or second half of 12, he makes them swear to do as this promise. So he contractually has them committed. And as we'll see over the next few chapters in Nehemiah, going forward in chapter 5 and, and, and following, they provide verbal affirmations, they dedicate the walls. In chapter 12, they have celebration festivals, they read scripture for seven days straight, which we start tomorrow, I think. Reading seven? No. Seven days straight reading scripture. That would just completely be amazing. Of course it would be. They fast in chapter 9. They confess nationally in chapter 9. They even rub dirt on their head in confession, recommitting themselves, signing, literally signing a covenant agreement. They basically do every conceivable thing, committing themselves to the Lord. And all it takes is a short break, a short business trip of Nehemiah back to home, as in uh, uh, Susa, back to Babylon, and all the reforms that Nehemiah instigated are reversed. The temple's in disarray, the Sabbath is violated, and marriages are compromised. And then he acts in all sorts of different ways, which we'll look at uh, when we get there. So the point to note, the fourth point of application as we uh, start to wrap up here, is that we need to keep spiritually vigilant You can go through all the spiritual motions. You can come to church. You can go to GC. You can attend the prayer meetings. You can post the right spiritual memes or whatever it is, whatever currency it is in in, in that world. But it can actually have no effect whatsoever on your life. That's a reality. It's God alone who can bring about genuine change and redemption. One just sincerely turns to the Lord in trust. And that's where the Lord will will meet you. If the societal and spiritual catastrophe of Nehemiah 5 sounds familiar to you or echoes failures in your own personal experience, take heart. Because the Lord has heard your cry. He knows what you're going through specifically what you're going through. God's offer to you today is what he planted in the very first verse of this entire story, a new heart, his presence with you, his Holy Spirit guiding you. If you've been battling with sin, if you feel like you've sinned yourself into a corner, that you're not worthy to participate in some gathering or group, you feel like people would consider you a hypocrite for being here today. How dare you pretend to... If you've struggled with miserable addictions that crush your spirit, you feel like you've disappointed family and friends, yourself, 
I have some really good news for you. Nehemiah 5 is not, in fact, the end of the story. It's not the end. If you don't believe me, keep flicking your pages. Something happens after Nehemiah 5. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God is at work redeeming and restoring and orchestrating healing and change. You might say, come on, mate, you've got no idea. You've got no idea what I'm going through. What idols I succumb to every day, who I ripped off, what I felt towards the person that I live with, the sort of facade I put on when I'm around people like you. You're right, I don't know. I'll be honest, I don't. I might try to understand, but I don't know. But I'll tell you, there is one that does. There's one who knows temptation, but was faithful, who was pushed to the edge and didn't jump, didn't abuse his status as the son of God to make these rocks into bread to satisfy his own personal desires. That's Matthew 4. There is one who knows your struggle, who sympathises with your weaknesses. Yet without sin, his name's Jesus. That's Hebrews chapter 4. There is one who establishes a new covenant in his own blood for you, and his name is Jesus. That's Luke 22. There is one from whom arose a great tzedakah, or tzedakah, of distress, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Do you remember that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uttered precisely at that time when he took the punishment that was yours and mine. His name's Jesus, and that's in Mark chapter 15. Jesus is our only hope, our only vision, our only help. And God knows we can't do it by ourselves. Of course we can't. But God's master plan in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit will out-strategize your spiritual growth principles, transcend your charting of your own holiness and success or whatever it is in in life, and eclipse any kind of flimsy self-help gibberish that we tell ourselves. The Lord is at work. And I pray that we would have eyes to see that. Open lives to receive the new heart that God promises us and allow God's Holy Spirit to do its transformational work in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Great and beautiful Lord, we thank you for the encouragement and the challenge of your word, the sharpness of the sword of the Spirit that cuts through all the nonsense that we build up. We are sorry that we have been the ones to extract those cries of distress, perhaps selfishly or or unknowingly, from the world in which we live. We pray, Lord, for your Spirit to be at work in our lives. We pray for an open life. We pray for a new heart, Lord. A heart that allows your spirit to work in it for genuine change in our life. We pray this not out of a sense of um, baseless hope, but Lord, based on the hope of the story of transformation that you want to affect in our lives, your people and this earth, which is, we pray, your kingdom come. We thank you for the redemption. We thank you for the hope 
that we have in you, Lord. We open ourselves to the transformative power of your spirit that could tame our wild hearts and could make us wild in holiness, wild in devotion, wild in following you, Lord, that you might be exalted. We pray this in no other name but your name, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.